Hi, I'm Deirdre Veldon and this is Confronting Coronavirus, a daily podcast on the COVID-19 outbreak. Research is showing obesity and type 2 diabetes are risk factors for becoming seriously ill with COVID-19. Professor Donal O'Shea is the HSE Clinical Lead on Obesity and a consultant at St Vincent's and St Columkill's Hospitals. Donal O'Shea, you're an endocrinologist. Have you noticed recently anything about the pattern of patients uh, attending you at the moment? Uh, well, uh, endocrinology, which kind of is mainly diabetes and thyroid problems, uh, patients uh, with those problems are not coming to the hospital. They're being encouraged to be dealt with uh, in kind of telehealth or virtual clinics where we phone uh, them and see how they're doing. So uh, in terms of what we're seeing, uh, we're, we're actively converting a lot of what we do to that kind of uh, telehealth uh, platform uh, and the HSE have kind of approved a couple of uh, platforms uh, attend anywhere telepro you know there's a couple that they've said are good they're not at all comfortable with zoom uh, for security reasons although zoom is very functional uh, and we've certainly been until we're up and running with the other forms uh, we're using Zoom for our more urgent uh, cases where we do need face-to-face, where the telephone just is not enough. And in diabetes education, where you're trying to teach people to in how to inject and carbohydrate count, you know, the visual is really important. And how does that compare to the, the, the real experience, I suppose, of, of somebody attending in person? Um, we're... Very surprised at how positive an experience uh, it has been to date. Uh, And certainly my feeling was whatever about seeing follow-up patients with whom we'd already established a relationship, uh, that to see a new patient, uh, either just in a telephone consultation or with a kind of the the visual support, uh, would be very difficult. And I think in our specialty, uh, that's proving uh, not to be the case. Uh, it's proving uh, very effective for, I would say, maybe 80% of, of new patient consultations. Uh, our surgical colleagues, where the physical examination is absolutely critical, you know, the, there's no telephone and there's no visual will we'll do that for you. Um, and I think the, 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 the biggest concern at the moment is the number of individuals who are not seeking any medical advice either from primary care or emergency medicine um, and, and, and they're just sitting it out. So in terms of those people and, and their needs, what would you be particularly worried about if they're not making an appointment at all? Um, I, I mean, the advances in medical care and outcomes over the last 25, 30 years have been built on earlier diagnosis, uh, earlier intervention. And uh, the later anybody presents in the course of any disease, uh, the poorer the outcome. So that is the the clear worry, whether it's your uh, type two diabetes, whether it's your cancer, any of those chronic diseases, you know, your, your shortness of breath, causes of that can be heart failure, can be COPD, can be asthma, and early identification is almost the first step to better outcomes.
And at the moment, patients are not presenting to primary care uh, almost at all. And, and primary care has gone uh, to a, a, an appointment only, uh, almost triage service. And then we also see while there's a bit of a kind of a comeback now in the numbers to the emergency department, and certainly last Friday in Vincent's was like a really normal, uh, busy day. There was 180 attendances. Uh, and, you know, that's good to see. We need that to come back. But the weekend has been very quiet. Bank holiday weekends tend to be quiet. So it'll be interesting to see what the attendances are, are like now on, you know, the Tuesday after a bank holiday uh, weekend, which is traditionally a really busy day. And we need to see more people attending. And what's happening then with waiting lists for your clinics? Are we are we setting ourselves up for a major deluge in the autumn? I think we have managed to keep about 80% of our activity um, going within the uh, diabetes endocrine service. But that's a service that lends itself to uh, this kind of telemedicine. And I think we will be doing more of the telemedicine after the COVID-19 uh, kind of crisis in that post-COVID-19 era. Uh, for, for gastroenterology, uh, you know, clinics, uh, surgical clinics, uh, and, and then the elective procedures like endoscopies and, and minor theatre procedures that will often identify something early in the course of the disease, that's where uh, there's going to be a massive uh, backlog and build up. I mean, you've literally, uh, you know, we've all had long waiting lists and the system has gone into a paralysis mode for the last two months while we've attempted to have capacity to deal with the COVID-19 surge that thankfully didn't happen. Uh, but the concern about the surge uh, or a second surge as restrictions are lifted means that we have to be ready in the system for capacity. And I think that's why the HSC are looking now to the private hospitals to actively take on the work of the, uh, you know, the endoscopies, the elective surgeries, the, the non-emergency but still urgent work uh, that uh, much of which is, has not uh, been done in the last two months. Paul Reed saying... Uh, that the hospital system to be efficient needs to run at 85% capacity. Uh, that is going to involve keeping uh, a lot of patients, if you like, out of hospital, and it's going to involve maximizing the use of the uh, private hospital system, um, which is still being underused. But when you have an environment where you are actively wanting patients to come to hospital and seek help but at the same time you're saying we're only going to be able to operate at 85 percent capacity that's a, a kind of a, a mismatch uh, and you can understand both sides uh, of it but it's just part of the i suppose the difficulties and contradictions you have when you're in the middle of a, a situation that's uh, never really been experienced before and, and i just think that's going to be a tough one uh, to uh, balance. What do we know about the link between obesity and COVID-19 and, and what have we learned about this link since we've started seeing cases in Ireland? 
yeah, there was a signal before, uh, you know, COVID-19 arrived in Ireland that overweight and obesity was associated with really bad outcomes from early uh, studies in the Wuhan district. Uh, when it arrived in Ireland, it became very apparent to me talking to our intensive care colleagues uh, that the patients that were ending up in trouble uh, were those who, uh, you know, significant uh, issues with their weight. And subsequently, the data from Italy and from last week, the UK has come through showing that if you have significant issues with your weight, uh, then you're up to seven times more likely to end up in intensive care. Uh, you're almost seven times more likely to be intubated and ventilated. Uh, so there is a really strong signal um, that uh, obesity and, and having obesity is associated with a, a, a much worse trajectory for the uh, COVID-19 infection. It's not clear whether you're more likely to get it or not. But certainly, if you have obesity and you get COVID-19, uh, it's a real signal when you come in that you need to be watched very closely and that you're likely to have a much uh, poorer uh, outcome. And, you know, that shouldn't be a big surprise because the course of a viral illness in somebody with obesity, we, we know from influenza, we know from the previous coronavirus, SARS, uh, that your outcome uh, is uh, more likely to be a course of a much more serious illness if you have uh, obesity. In terms of, of morbidity from um, coronavirus in, in people with obesity, um, what, what are we learning about that? Uh, well, I suppose the, the course of the disease is worse. Um, if you have obesity, uh, you are seven times more likely to die from coronavirus if you have uh, obesity. So, you know, the, there's it, it seems, in, and particularly in younger individuals, that having obesity is uh, a, a more significant predictor of bad outcome than type 2 diabetes, than heart disease. And, and really, it's almost up there with being over 80 years of age, uh, which we know, and um, you know, we have been, if you like, uh, really minding the older adults uh, and, and trying to protect the older adults uh, during the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. I think, you know, individuals who have significant uh, obesity really need to be aware uh, that all the measures that are talked about for preventing, uh, you know, uh, getting COVID-19, that they are just incredibly vigilant around those measures. The other condition that's been associated with negative outcomes and coronavirus is diabetes. What do we know about that? Yeah, I think it's very hard to separate diabetes uh, and obesity in the sense that uh Again, the type of diabetes that's associated with a uh, particularly poor outcome is type 2 diabetes, which is 80% uh, uh, driven by uh, overweight and obesity. Uh, and both obesity and type 2 diabetes are conditions that affect your immune system. So your immune system is already a little bit pro-inflammatory. And then if you 
get on top of that the COVID-19 inflammatory response, uh, you are more likely to be overwhelmed. Uh, So again, type 2 diabetes or obesity don't make you more likely to get the virus. But if you get it, you are more likely to have uh, and significantly more likely to have a a poor outcome. Um, And I think awareness, there is awareness around that. Uh, I think when the dust settles, you know, in six to nine months time and you're able to look back and say, well, uh, you know, was it some of the treatments people were on for their diabetes? Was it some of the, uh, you know, we'll be able to look at people who had their weight uh, actively managed, say, through bariatric surgery and and see where they protected. Um, Because when you have a really close link between two conditions and poor outcome in a disease like corona, uh, then you need to look and see, can you learn lessons that might help you understand uh, how to protect for uh, in another wave of COVID-19 if, as is predicted, this becomes might become a seasonal kind of um, event, uh, then you, you would need to, to know the best way to manage the at-risk groups. What kind of options would be available for those at-risk groups in the event that social restrictions are substantially lifted, for example? Well, I mean, I think the at-risk groups will have to be... Um, uh, you know, increasingly vigilant, and uh, and there is discussion about uh, the uh, physical distancing restrictions uh, being eased uh, in in uh, the UK. They're they're looking at the evidence around that. While the World Health Organization are saying physical distancing is absolutely critical for the future, so mixed messaging is going to be a, a real challenge for for at-risk groups because if you tell people to stay two meters apart uh, they will stay a meter and a half apart most of the time if you tell people a meter is fine they'll be closer than that and you would lose your physical distancing uh, which has to be a critical part of managing uh, a condition that's spread through uh, droplet and and close contact so uh, I, i think I, I would certainly uh, be very nervous about easing uh, the physical uh, distancing restrictions in individuals who are obese or individuals who have type 2 diabetes. Uh, and uh, I think, again, you're going to have to look at evidence from other countries as they lift restrictions and the way they lift restrictions uh, as to, you know, do we see uh, a secondary um, uplift in, uh, in in case presentations. Thanks very much, Donald. My thanks to Suzanne Brennan, who produced today's podcast. And thanks for listening. Stay up to date with the latest developments at irishtimes.com. We'll be back tomorrow.